The sermon is part of an ongoing Mother's Day series on founding mothers of Unitarian Universalism that's been going on for a few years. Let me start by sharing with you a few slides. We began a few years ago now with Margaret Fuller, who along with Emerson and Thoreau is one of our three most important transcendentalist forebears. Her 1845 book, Women in the 19th Century, was a significant contribution to the women's equality movement. Uh, that book about her by Megan Marshall is fascinating. And this is my favorite photo of Fuller. It says to me, like her, she's just saying like, I just can't even is what I imagine her thinking. Uh, next, we moved to the three Peabody sisters, especially Elizabeth Peabody, uh, an author herself who published many of the Transcendentalists under her own imprint. And she also became the celebrated founder of kindergartens in America. Then we explored the life of Julia Ward Howe, about whom it is said she had six children, learned six languages, and wrote six books. She's most famous for writing the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. She also helped found Mother's Day itself through her Mother's Day proclamation for peace, very much worth revisiting. We've also focused on Mary Moody Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's aunt, whom he called his earliest and best teacher as well as Louisa May Alcott. She's best known, of course, as the author of Little Women. If you haven't seen that new Greta Gerwig movie, check it out. Uh, but at the time of her death in 1888, far beyond just Little Women, she was the country's most popular author and had earned more from writing than any male author at that time. And last year, we focused on Olympia Brown, a universalist uh, who in 1863 became the first woman ordained with full denominational authority. So that, that's a lot, I realize. Um, in future years, I look forward to telling you about some of our other founding mothers of UU, Judith Sargent Murray, an early American advocate for women's rights, who was married to John Murray, the founder of the Universalist half of our movement, uh, Sophia Lyon Foz, who revolutionized 20th century UU religious education, Frances Harper, one of the first African-American women to be published in the United States. Uh, Again, my, my intent with this quick summary is not to overwhelm you with names and dates. Rather, I hope your takeaway will be that as Unitarian Universalists, we are truly lifted up on the shoulders of giants, many of whom were path-breaking women. Retelling these stories of our UU ancestors can allow their lives to inspire us to live our UU values today. In that spirit, our focus this year, as you heard some already from Nancy, is on uh, Lydia Mariah Child. She was a pathbreaking activist for social justice in the 19th century, and there was a time spanning many decades in this country when she was a household name. William Lloyd Garrison, the prominent journalist and abolitionist, called her the first woman in the republic. U.S. Senator Charles Sumner cited her as an inspiration for his commitment to racial equality. He consulted her on how to shape legislation related to a reconstruction following the Civil War. 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, a leader in the women's suffrage movement, uh, held Child's book, History of the Condition of Women, as a touchstone resource in the struggle for women's equality. Notably, that book on women's equality was published in 1835. That's 13 years before the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls that was in 1848. Or John, John uh, Greenleaf Whittier, an abolitionist and one of the fireside poets, he said of her, whenever there was a brave word to be spoken, her voice was heard and never without effect. I could continue listing many more accolades along these lines. She was also a direct influence on many of our Unitarian forebears of the time, including famous ministers, you know, uh, William Ellery Channing uh, went out of his way, like he walked to her house to go talk to her for three hours. Uh, Theodore Parker, uh, many of our transcendentalist forebears, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller were reading and conversing uh, and influenced by her. And there's a lot of fun facts around her, uh, like she wrote the lyrics to the song sort of randomly to Over the River and Through the Woods uh, that Nick played as our introit. So if this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, there's some great biographies of her. Uh, our own Beacon Press has published Crusader for Freedom. There's a huge tome of a book titled First Woman of the Republic from Duke University Press. So there's lots out there if you want to learn more. For now, let's start at the beginning. Lydia Francis, as she was known at birth, was born in 1802 in Medford, Massachusetts, and she later gave herself the uh, name um, Mariah, uh, which became her preference. She was the youngest of seven children, and both her parents had grown up in pretty difficult circumstances. Both of their families had been uh, really hurt economically in the aftermath of the Revolutionary War, but over time, her father established a quite successful bakery business. Her closest siblings, who was the youngest again, was her brother Converse. He was six years older. And even though she showed an early aptitude for learning, she realized in elementary school that early that, wait, girls are in one room, boys are in another, and she realized that she wasn't learning the same things that her brother and the other males were learning. Keep in mind that growing up in the early 1800s, it would be more than a century until 1936 when the first woman was admitted to Harvard. In 1811, when she was only nine years old, um, Converse uh, left for college that year. Her favorite sister left to get married. Her mother was spending most days in bed due to a terminal illness. So her situation was really quite difficult and her mother died a few years later in 1814 when she was only 12. But Charles uh, persevered, and in particular, she continued to educate herself, as she would continue to do throughout her life. Indeed, we have a letter that she wrote the next year when she was only 15 years old to her brother Converse, who was then uh, completing, almost completing his studies at Harvard Divinity School, in which we can see her radical perspective beginning to sprout. We see her both praising Milton's Paradise Lost and also saying, quote, so she says, I've never read a poem that displayed a more vigorous genius. And then she says, but don't you think that Milton asserts the superiority of his own sex in rather too lordly a manner? Even more impressively, she then proceeds to cite specific textual references to support her point. I'll show you a few more slides as we continue.
So the good news is that after her brother graduated from Harvard Divinity School, he was uh, called to serve as the minister of the Unitarian con Congregation at First Parish Watertown in Waterton in Massachusetts, and she was able to go live with him, which she did in 1821 at the age of 19. Uh, I should add just briefly in passing, that congregation was founded, so UUCF was founded in 1961. Um, First Parish Waterton was founded in 1630. <laughs> So, you know, more than 100 years before the Revolutionary War, it's one of the oldest Unitarian congregations in the U.S. Um, uh, here's a slide of her brother, Converse, who is six years older than she was. Uh, in particular, what was significant is that living in her brother's parsonage meant that she had access to his personal library, which was already significant when he graduated Harvard, and it grew over his lifetime to include more than 7,000 volumes. And her love of books and learning was soon to blossom into a lifelong practice of writing. Over more than 50 years, from 1824 to 1878, she published more than 30 books. A volume of her collected letters gathered by her friends also became an additional posthumous bestseller. Uh, but her literary career started um, pretty early when she was 22 in 1824. She wrote her first book, and she wrote it in six weeks, which is pretty quick. Uh, it's now remembered as the first New England historical novel. Keep in mind, as one critic wrote, that her earliest publications really came at the dawn of American imaginative literature. When she was first writing, Emerson was only 21. Hawthorne was only 20. Thoreau, he was seven. So this was a time as well when a woman publishing anything was a radical act and pretty rare. It's also significant that she was willing to throw caution to the wind from the very beginning. So that book you see, Habamak, one of the uh, major plot points uh, in that first novel from her is an unapologetic and loving relationship between a white woman and a Native American man. She rightly believed and said very clearly there is only one race, the human race, and that interracial marriage was a way to build bridges across artificial societal divides. And even with these controversial choices, the novel ended up getting some important positive reviews and gained her invitation into some of the upper echelons of Boston society. And at this point, um, Child was moving from strength to strength. She had become financially independent, quite impressive for a, a single woman in the early 1800s. The hard part is that trajectory ended for one major reason. In 1828, at the age of 26, four years after her debut as an author, she got married. Although her husband was well intended, I could spend the rest of this sermon, but I will not, because I want to keep her at the center and not him, but I could spend the rest of the sermon detailing his ill-advised money-losing ventures. Suffice it to say that her earnings rarely kept up with her husband's debts, and they spent a significant portion of their married life in poverty, moving often from home to home quite regularly. Keep in mind at the time as well that marriage at that time meant that her husband had legal control over everything. She couldn't sign a contract without his consent. All her earnings were his, even the clothes on her back. And part of why that dynamic is so devastating is that a year after she was married, she published a best-selling handbook, The Frugal Housewife. And in that first year, that book sold 6,000 copies and it earned more than $2,000 total in the first two years. It's really interesting to think briefly of what her life might have been like if she hadn't gotten married or if she hadn't gotten married to the person she got married to.
Another significant factor was that uh, Mariah Child's income was soon significantly reduced from her progressive stances for social justice. In particular, in 1833, she published a powerful and influential pro-abolitionist book titled An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. As a result of the bold stance she took in that book for racial equality, sales of nearly all her books fell sharply, but she remained undaunted. Instead of stopping after receiving negative consequences for her stances for racial justice, uh, she spent the next few years writing an influential book on another controversial topic, women's equality. And as I shared earlier, that book, The History of the Condition of Women in Various Ages and Nations, was published in 1835. I'll share with you just one quote. Society can never be established on a true and solid foundation so long as there is any distinction whatsoever between men and women with regard to the full and free exercise of their facilities on all subjects, art, science, literature, business, or politics. Around that time, it was becoming pretty clear as she spent, you know, a lot of some time, had a lot of association with Unitarianism as well as explored a few other religions, and it soon became clear that her chosen religion was really social justice. She believed, as we would say, in deeds, not creeds. Particularly in the abolitionist movement, she finally found what she had been looking for her whole life a community of believers, women as well as men, who shared her passion for truth and freedom and with whom she could labor and prove her faith by works. I'll, share you just, I'll show you just a few more slides. There's so much to say about Lydia Mariah Child. Before I pivot to my conclusion, I want to briefly mention um, two other of her books that I find particularly fascinating. The first was published in 1855 in the middle of her life. It was titled The Progress of Religious Ideas Through Successive Ages. Quite radically for the time, she sought to present each of the world's religions on its own terms. And what most people did was present their own religion as the favorite. More than three decades later, in 1878, when she was 76 years old, this is a little, the photo is a little bit older, earlier than that. So almost at the end of her life, she extended this project in her final book titled Aspirations of the World. She nicknamed that book her Eclectic Bible. And what's really interesting is to see her including passages from modern thinkers in her Bible. So Thomas Paine and Emerson and Carlyle and Theodore Parker are equally as significant in her Eclectic Bible as excerpts from ancient scripture that she also sets in their respective historical contexts. It's said that as they grow older, some people mellow, they grow more conservative. In the case of Mariah Child, it is clear that with age, she only grew more radical. Toward the end of her life, things did also improve, both emotionally and financially, in her final years with her husband. She additionally lived another eight years um, after his death, before her own death from a heart attack in 1880, at the age of 78. At her funeral, a friend and fellow abolitionist said, we felt that neither fame, nor gain, nor danger, nor calumny, false or defamatory, um, defamatory statements had any weight on her. She was ready to die for a principle or starve for an idea. Along these lines, I described her earlier as a path-breaking activist for social justice in the 19th century, and she truly was. 
As one of her biographers wrote, there was just no script for such a life. She had to make it up as she went along. She helped blaze a trail for justice and equality that future generations have continued to follow. For now, I'll end with three brief quotes from Mariah Child that encapsulate some of the advice that what might she tell us today if she were alive during this pandemic? First, she might tell us what she often told herself and other activists in her day, what she had found to be true over the decades of activism for social justice. She found that in toiling for the freedom of others, we find our own freedom. I love that. It was so clear to Mariah Child that her liberation was bound up in the liberation of all, that no one is free truly until we all get free. She believed in collective liberation. Or maybe she would tell us that regardless of whether those currently in power are acting rightly, all we can do is follow patiently and fearlessly every principle which we clearly perceive to be true. So if they're not being right, we can continue to do in our power what we know to be right. Finally, she might tell us that our highest aspirations are prophecies. Child knew that our highest aspirations are prophecies of what might be glimpses of the better world that we might build if we turn our dreams into deeds as she did. Today, as we join the outcry against ongoing racial injustice from the horrifying modern day lynching of Ahmed Arbery to the disproportionate impact we're seeing every day of coronavirus on indigenous nations and communities of color. Let us remember that we are part of a long line of activists for peace and justice who came before us. More is possible today because of the activism Mariah Child and others committed to in the past. Our call in turn is to do our part today to extend the struggle for peace, liberty, and justice that even more might be possible for us and for future generations to come. And as we reflect on how we each feel called to act individually and together within our spheres of influence, let us hold in our hearts the example of Lydia Mariah Child and so many others. She truly lived the words of the prayer we heard earlier. Let it at least be written down in history that with our last breaths, we fought for the world that ought to be. In that spirit, let's sing together, love will guide us.